We're delighted to welcome Reverend Leslie Curran to our church this morning. He has been here on other occasion during the opening, but this is his first time up in the pulpit to minister to us. He's been with us on many occasions over in the old schoolhouse, but uh, things have moved on a wee bit since then, and uh, we just trust that the Lord will bless Reverend Curran as he brings to us the word that the Lord has laid upon his heart. Thank you very much. I thank our brother for making the announcements and for the kind words of welcome. It's good to be back with you and carried off into a new fellowship in the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we look to the Lord for his presence with us today and for his blessing upon our hearts as we meet around his own precious word. You'll find our scripture reading in the New Testament scriptures in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians and the first chapter, and we'll commence reading at the 10th verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and reading from verse 10, and we'll also read just a few verses in chapter 2. But first of all, the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, and reading from the 10th verse, let us hear the word of the Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. And then moving into the second chapter and commencing at verse 1, chapter 2 and verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. 
For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God. Ending there at the fifth verse of the second chapter, and we know that the Lord will add his own blessing to the reading of his word for Christ's sake. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great creator. Not only is he the great creator, but he is also the great redeemer. He's the one who has created us by his power. And it's true to say he redeems us by his mercy and by his own precious blood. As the creator, he is the sovereign over this entire world. And also as the redeemer, he has a very special relationship to the children of God, to the people of God. In fact, we discover when Paul is writing his letter uh, to the Colossians that he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ as being the head, the head of the body. I'm thinking of those words in Colossians 1 and verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. So his body here is a reference to the church. And whenever we use the word church, when we speak of the word church, What is it that we should have in mind? What do we mean by the church? Well, to put it very simply, the church is all of those whom God has chosen in Christ Jesus. They are the chosen ones. They are the called out ones. And where there is a gathering or a group of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's true to say that there, in that place, there is a part of the church of Jesus Christ. But the one who is the head of the church is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Sometimes when we speak about the church, we refer to the church militant. By that we mean the the church here on earth, made up of believers who are still here upon this earth. We also sometimes hear a reference to the church triumphant, and that's a reference to those children of God who have been called home to heaven, and they are now with Christ forevermore, which is far better. The church is always one. There is a wonderful unity in the church of Jesus Christ, and this one only church has one only head namely Jesus Christ himself. Recall the words that the Savior spoke to Peter whenever Peter made that great confession of his true identity. You remember when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then amongst the things that the Savior said in response to that bold confession by Peter, remember he he gave a promise and he said, "I I will build my church. I will build my church. And right away from those words, we can say that the one who is the builder of the church, 
is the Lord Jesus himself. Not only is he the builder of it, he's the owner of it. It's his church. I will build my church. And so in the light of those grand and glorious truths concerning Jesus Christ and his church and that promise, I will build my church, we are going to consider just for a brief time today the central place that the Lord Jesus has in his church. Or to express it another way, we're going to consider Christ's centrality in the church of God. And in order for us to see the central position of the Lord Jesus, I want to draw your attention first of all to this truth that the Lord Jesus Christ is the sole, the sole foundation, the sole foundation of his church. And in order for us to see this clearly, I trust, from the Scriptures, we had our Scripture reading in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the church at Corinth. And as he was writing to this church, in the opening chapters, uh, he has cause to refer to something of the disunity that had been there in the church amongst some who were present at Corinth. And he has to address that, and he does so. And when we move from the opening chapters and we come into 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we discover that he's still speaking of it in the opening verses of the third chapter. But then as we follow down further in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, he has occasion to speak about the foundation, the foundation of the church. And, and he does so by reminding them in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9, he says, we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Now remember, he's writing here to those who are part of the church of Jesus Christ, those who are believers, those who are saved by the grace of God. And then he goes on to tell them this in verse 10. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, speaking here about himself. The grace of God given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation. Notice the words. Paul says here as he writes to these Corinthians, to the church at Corinth, I have laid the foundation. And another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. And he says that, and he gives the reason in the next verse, verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's stating it very plainly and clearly that the foundation of the church is none other than Jesus Christ himself. But as we're thinking here about the church at Corinth, someone might ask the question, well, how, how did it come that uh, Paul is speaking here about the foundation and the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ? Well, how, how did that all come about as far as the church at Corinth was concerned? Well, we're not left to speculate because we've got a very, very clear and concise record of just how it did come about. I'm thinking of some verses that we find over in the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 18, 
The very opening verse of the 18th chapter tells us of Paul leaving Athens and coming to Corinth. And then as we read on in the verses, we find here in Acts chapter 18 what he did whenever he came to Corinth. We're told in verse 4 that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And then as you drop down further in this 18th chapter, he leaves the synagogue and we find that he departs in verse 7 and enters into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So, Try to get the picture clearly in your mind. Here is the Lord's servant, Paul. He has come to Corinth. He's been in the synagogue. He has been preaching. And we've just read in that verse how that there were those who came and what they heard caused them to, to believe and to believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder what you have heard of God's word, perhaps in the past, what you have heard of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, has it caused you to savingly believe on the Savior, the only Savior of sinners? It certainly took place here at Corinth. There were many who, on hearing, believed. And the Lord's servant had to be encouraged by that. But he was, I'm sure, even more encouraged Whenever we go on to read still in Acts chapter 18 that the Lord spake to him in the night, verse 9, by a vision, be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. The Lord was promising and assuring him of his presence with him. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people. This is the Lord speaking to Paul to encourage his heart. He says, I have, I have much people in this city. Now, we've seen that he has come to Corinth and he has been, he has been preaching. Well, what has he been preaching? Well, we find from 1 Corinthians, from which we read just exactly what he has been preaching. And we discover that he has been preaching the gospel you notice in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 17, he's telling them, remember, he's writing this letter to these Corinthians. And he says in verse 17 of the first chapter, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So he came to Corinth and he was preaching the gospel. And as he preached the gospel, what did he say? Did he make reference to anyone in particular as he preached the gospel? Well, we discover that he did. Because as we follow down in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to verse 23, we read these words. We preach Christ crucified. So we've noted in verse 17 of the chapter that he was preaching the gospel. And we've seen there from verse 23 that he was preaching Christ and him crucified. 
because there is only one gospel. There is only one true gospel, and where the one true gospel is preached, there must be, there will be, the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. He will, if you like, be the central figure in the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. Now, remember where Paul had come to. He had come to Corinth. What kind of a, a city was, was Corinth? Well, it was uh, one of those cities where there were many, and they considered themselves to be wonderful philosophers. They had many, many philosophies that they said that they adhered to and that they believed in. Also, there were those in the city of Corinth and they would have prized themselves in their, what they would have called their great oratory. And they would no doubt have been quick to pass judgment on any who would come amongst them. Oh, I don't think he's really the, the orator that uh, we are. He doesn't have the pronunciation of this, that, and the other thing. And as Paul is writing here his epistle to the church at Corinth, he, he refers to this, and he just wants to assure them that whenever he came, despite no doubt there might have been many temptations, and there were many temptations that he was facing, for he had come to preach Christ and him crucified, and tell the people that Jesus Christ is the one and only foundation on which to build for eternity, and there is none other. There might have been those who would have said, well, would you not feel you should maybe deviate from that message? Would you not want to bring us some philosophical thinking and thoughts? Maybe the people would profit much more from that. There would be much more benefit to be derived from that kind of speaking, Paul. Ah, but what did he say? Well, let's just read the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech, or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. And the words, the testimony of God, are just a reference to the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he said in verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he tells us further in verse 4, And my speech and my preaching was not was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Oh, all those philosophers who were there. He says, I haven't come to try and compete with you. I have come with one message and one message only, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but, and here's one of the buts in Holy Scripture, but, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And so as he came here, he came to preach the gospel, and in preaching the gospel he was preaching Christ and him crucified, and he's telling them that Jesus Christ and him alone is the, is the sole foundation. So that's why Jesus Christ must be and have a central place in the church, his church, the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ, because 
He is the sole foundation of the church. And we must never depart from that. We must never forget that. Because if you think uh, about a, a physical building, and I, I know now you're worshiping in this beautiful building here, and I'm sure if you look back and think back to the times whenever the foundations were being laid, in, in a great way and in a great measure, and I, I'm not any, any uh, expert in building, but I, I think I know this much, that the, the, the foundation is really determining determining the, the, the shape of the entire edifice that is going to be built upon that foundation. And so it is in the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is the one and only and sure foundation. And we must never try to build on any other foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ alone. So that's one reason why Jesus Christ is central in his church because he is the sole foundation. Second reason is this. He is, he's the only source of life in his church. Oh yes, he's the foundation of his church and the sole one at that. But let's understand that he is the single source of spiritual life in his church. You might say, well, can you convince me of that? Can you persuade me of that? Yes, I believe I can, and I can do so from God's own word. I want to draw your attention for just a moment to one verse in particular. We could go to many verses, but I'll draw your attention just to one in particular. And I'm thinking of what Paul was writing and saying whenever he was writing to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4. Listen to the words that we read. The verse begins, when Christ. And then you'll notice in our authorized version, there are two words that follow. And those two words that follow are in italics. And I reckon you know why they're in italics because they are not in the original Greek. But our translators wisely had put them in, but to show that they were not in the original, they are in italics. And they were put in just in the translation to help us with an understanding of the word. So if I don't read those two words now, that are in italics. I don't want you saying this man's trying to leave out a part of God's word. Uh, I'm just uh, refreshing your memory on that part. So I'm going to leave out those two words that follow because they're in italics. So in doing that, then the verse would read, when Christ our life, when Christ our life shall appear. Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Christ our life. Doesn't that plainly state, clearly state, that the Lord Jesus himself is the life? He is the life. He's not just the one who, who gives life, who imparts life. He, he himself is, is the life. He has promised that life to us. He has merited that life for us. 
And it is he who bestows that life upon us in his grace and in his mercy. We've been speaking about the Apostle Paul. And I want to just remind you of a verse that we find in in Galatians. uh, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And he said this, and he's speaking about himself here in reference to Jesus Christ. And he said in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Note those words. Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a a verse that is so, so full. He's speaking about Christ living in him. He's speaking about the life that he lives. It's by the faith of the Son of God, the one, he says, who loved me. I was thinking much about that this morning, the one who loved me. The one who loved me. This this is his testimony. The Lord loved him. And he so loved him that he he died for him. He gave himself for him. I, I wonder, is that your testimony? Can you identify with these words of the Apostle Paul? And say, yes, Christ liveth in me. I have spiritual life. The very life of God in my soul. The very life of God in my heart. Because Paul certainly had and he bears testimony to it. And it's all because of the one who is, who is his life. Well, how, how does Christ become the life of his church? How does Jesus Christ become your life? Well, let let the Scriptures explain it to us. And we must go to another apostle this time. We'll go to Peter. And when Peter was writing his first letter, 1 Peter, he was writing it to, to believers who were scattered abroad in many, many places, but they were part of the one true church of Jesus Christ of which Christ is the sole foundation. And as he wrote to them, he he wanted to encourage them. And the children of God need encouragement. And the dear saints of God in this day and age do need encouragement. If you're a believer in the meeting, I hope that you'll acknowledge that in times that we're living in, we hear so much that would completely discourage us We do need the Lord's encouragement in our hearts and in our souls. So when Peter was writing to these dear saints, he wanted to encourage them. And he had many words to say unto them, words inspired by the Holy Ghost. And amongst those inspired words, I want to read just a few in the second chapter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, because... He realizes that many of them haven't long been saved, and he's wanting to help them on the, 
on the pilgrim pathway to glory. And he's saying as new, in verse 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And they, they indeed had tasted in a spiritual sense the grace and the goodness and the mercy and the love of God to them in Christ Jesus. And then he said in verse 4 these words, to whom coming, to whom coming, as unto a living stone. Speaking here of Jesus Christ, and he's using the metaphor of a living stone. You say a stone? No life in a stone. No, I know if there are stones out around here and we went out, they would be dead, inanimate objects. That's true. But he's speaking here about Jesus Christ as the living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. And then he says this in verse 5. Ye also. And I want you to get the connection. Ye also as lively stones. Or we could read it as living stones, because that's the meaning of the word translated lively. It's living. Ye also as living stones. Ye, those to whom he's writing, the believers in Christ, part of the church of Jesus Christ, and he's speaking of them and describing them as living stones. Oh, living stones, he says. He's likening them to a spiritual temple which God erects on the foundation who is Jesus Christ himself for he is the living stone. He's the living stone. And coming to him, Peter is saying, remember, he says, ye also as living stones to whom coming is unto a living stone. Ye also as living stones. In coming to him, they received him, the very one who is, who is the life. You remember in John 14, the Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and, and the life, and the life. He's the single source of spiritual life in his church. And that means for those who have come in simple faith and believed on him and trusted him as their savior and their only redeemer, they have life, spiritual life. For he that hath the Son hath life. Oh, you have physical life here in this meeting. That's true. But do you have spiritual life? Are you born again of the Spirit of God? trusting in Christ for the salvation of your soul. And when we come and trust in Christ and we are born again of the Spirit of God, then we want to have that, that new life nurtured and strengthened. And we want to be those who will be growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. And how, how do we do that? How will we do that? Well, again, let the, let the scriptures of truth explain it for us. 
I'm thinking of some verses over in John's Gospel, John's Gospel, chapter, chapter 6. And here we have verse 52, the Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The Lord Jesus had been speaking to them, and they didn't like what they heard. And they were highly, highly annoyed by the words of the Savior. Verse 53, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. How do we have the life? The one who is the life, it is by faith. How do we continue to have that life nourished and strengthened? It is by faith. And that's what the Savior was saying here to these Jews. In John chapter 6, he talked about eating the flesh and drinking the blood. He wasn't speaking about that in a physical sense. He didn't mean that in a physical manner, to actually eat his flesh and drink his blood. But he was speaking of that spiritually. That's what they were to do by faith. By faith. And in fact, he emphasizes it further down in verse 56 of John chapter 6, for he says, He that eateth, present tense, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. You see, there's the evidence that you have Christ who is the life in your heart, because by faith you're continuing to feast upon him. You're, if you like, lingering at the cross. You're lingering at the cross. And the Christian life is the life of faith. I fear that sometimes people think, well, when I come to Christ and trust him, I believe on him, and then somehow I revert back to works. Not at all. The Christian life begins with faith in Jesus Christ, and it continues continuing to believe in him, continuing to rest upon him who is the foundation, continuing to trust in him by faith. And the very place, the very place where life was imparted is the place where life is sustained. And the moment, the moment we get tired of living at the cross, living at the cross by faith, and we are starting to plead for mercies from God on some other ground or in some other foundation other than that is laid, which is just Jesus Christ and him crucified, then we are not going to know what it is to have the Lord and to be going forth enjoying him with his blessing upon our hearts. Oh, yes, there are, there are means of grace that the Lord has given to us to use, and under the blessing of God, these are but channels through which the Lord comes and ministers grace to our hearts and speaks to our souls. You see, Christ is our life. 
He's the sole single source of life in his church. That's why he must be central and is. And then thirdly, and in the final place, he's the one who has supreme lordship over his church. Supreme lordship over his church. Let me for a moment remind you of what Peter said whenever he was preaching on the day of Pentecost. Remember when he preached that sermon, that great sermon? And there was the multitude of souls that were swept into the kingdom and the, by the mighty power of God. And there was the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And as he was finishing his sermon, his message, we have it here in Acts chapter 2. Let me read the verse to you, verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, that same Jesus, the one who is the sole foundation, remember, the one who is the single source of spiritual life in his church, God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Do you see what's being said here? He's both Lord and Christ. It's not enough just to say the name Lord, Lord. You remember in Luke 6, 46, they were asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And how are we going to have it that we have him acknowledged as Lord, the one who's ruling and reigning in and over his church and all who are in it, all the members of his mystical body who have been born again of the Spirit of God. Well, let's think for a moment of the experience of the Apostle Paul. I know we've done that to some degree already, but let me go back to the time of his conversion. And you remember that before he was known as the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And if we consider the conversion of Saul of Tarsus just, just as a pattern, just as a pattern of what God does in, in any true conversion to Christ, as part of that true heart experience of anyone who will come and trust in Jesus Christ as a Savior, you remember when it happened, how it took place? Saul of Tarsus, he was on his way to lay hold of the believers, the, the, the friends and the followers of the Lord Jesus, to commit them to prison and even unto death. And then a light shone above the brightness of the noonday sun, and Saul of Tarsus fell to the ground, and he heard the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he cried out. He cried out. And then there was the response, I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom thou, whom thou persecutest. He had been persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, the believers. And yet the Lord was seeing that as a persecution of himself. I, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And whenever Saul, later to be the Apostle Paul, understood who Jesus really was, his heart response was, 
Lord, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? So he was receiving Christ as his Savior and also as his Lord. And we cannot just receive him as Savior and say, well, he's no longer got anything to say to me, really. Oh, no, the true believer will receive him as Savior, but also as Lord, in order to be guided by him, to be directed by him. And that's how it should be, and that's how it, how it must be. And how will he guide, and how will he direct, and how will he instruct us? He'll do that in and through his own word. And when his word rules, and when his word governs every facet of church life, I can put it like that, the standards that must be observed, evangelism, the outreach, whatever aspect of the work we want to think about, whatever aspect we want to consider, then it's his scepter. It's the word that will direct. It's the word that will show the way. It's the word that will instruct. That's why we dare not set this book aside. That's why we must not, we must not turn away from what's revealed in the word of God, in the scriptures of truth. We must go according to God's word because it's this very word that tells us how to get to heaven. And it's this same word that must govern uh, every area of our lives on the way to heaven. So that's why we must always come to the Scriptures. What saith the Scriptures? What, what saith the Word? Because if I was to come today and tell you something that isn't according to this Word, that isn't according to this book, what authority would it have? What authority would it have? And the answer to that question is, it wouldn't have any real authority. But if the preacher comes and speaks forth and preaches the word and the whole counsel of God, that very word has got all of the authority of heaven resting upon it. Therefore, that word does have authority. What's my word? What's my word? There's nothing. Ah, but when it's God's word, that's the authority that we need. That's the authority that we must have. That's why we must never in any way deviate from what the scriptures reveal. Can you see then why Jesus Christ has this central place? He's the sole foundation. He's the single source of spiritual life, and he's the one who is the supreme Lord, exercising that lordship over his church through his own precious word that he has given to us. Oh, may the Lord help us, we who know him, to continue to earnestly contend for the faith, ever preaching Christ. 
and him crucified. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come again to Thee in our Saviour's name, and we do give Thee thanks for Thy Word. What a precious book this is, the very Word of the living God. And we ask that Thou wilt take Thine own Word this day and bless it to each heart in this meeting. Grant that the saints of God will be helped and encouraged and strengthened thereby, and grant who for any who are still strangers to thee, who know thee not in a saving way, that, oh, it might be the means of not only convicting them, but of converting them, and they will come and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this very day. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.